You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, you're back with Jay Shapiro. The first program of a new year. And I hope that everyone enjoyed the holiday. And we hope and pray that our prayers were accepted, that we will have a good year. The first subject is something I'd like to speak about, uh, about the Palestinian Authority. I saw an article by the the co-founder of an organization called uh, Stand With Us. Her name is Roz Rothstein, and she wrote an article which summed up a lot of the basic problems with the Palestinian Authority the people seem willing to ignore, and uh, she considers it a mystery. And uh, she said that she finally thinks that she she figured it out. Essentially, the mystery is why is Israel completely get blamed all the time in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? People blame Israel alone. And the ignore what's being done by the Palestinian leadership. And she lists a bunch of things that are so obvious to, to anybody who's interested and keeps an eye on this problem. For example, Palestinian leaders and institutions even encourage little children to hate and kill Jews. There are even kindergarten plays and summer camps that are militarized, where kids are made to practice carrying out terrorist attacks. I don't. I know of no other society that does that. This this information, by the way, the, the footage is available on various organizations who watch this, like Memory or Palestinian Media Watch, and there are many other sources. It should be crystal clear that this is a form of child abuse. But it, it, it leads, of course, to endless conflict, endless hate, but it's a form of child abuse. Most people don't even consider that or think about it that way. Also, we've seen footage, time after time, of extremists or people in the streets in the Palestinian areas celebrating the murder of innocent Jews by distributing candy in Palestinian communities. Also, the Palestinian Authority continues to financially reward terrorists and their families who are convicted of murder and other crimes. Even the Palestinians who are in jail for for their court by the Israelis, their families get a stipend. And Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, who was elected for a five-year term, and he's been there almost 20 years, insists that this will continue even if the Palestinian Authority is left without a penny. That That is as far as the Palestinian Authority can, is concerned, which formally uh, controls the Palestinians in the central part of uh, Israel. And the Gaza Strip is controlled by Hamas, and uh, they they rule with a, with an iron fist. 
They launch rockets at Israel for houses, hospitals, and schools, and they fuel deadly waves of violence uh, all over the place, even against Arabs in the West Bank. So there's, there's a constant drumbeat of anti-Israel propaganda. The, uh, the truth of the matter is that no country should be uh, should be subjected to another country continually propagandizing against it. They should be worried about their own problems, improve their own problems, and not spend all their energy on hating their neighbor Israel. The uh, nor is in an effort to oppose the Israeli government's specific Israel policies. It's just hating Jews. It's been a dehumanizing and false story about how one player, Israel, is solely responsible for the entire conflict and all the stuff and it comes from it. In other words, they don't say anything particularly about Israel point by point where Israel is wrong about something. They simply hate Israel. They simply hate Jews. And this is what all their propaganda is. There's nothing about Jews they hate. They hate Jews. Whatever. So, so that's what the problem is. In this story, Palestinian leaders and terrorist groups have zero responsibility or despite their countless decisions and actions that have made life worse for the Palestinians as well as the Israelis. And, and, and what, what do they want to do? They want to dismantle the world's only Jewish state for the sake of justice and peace, according to them. Now, while it's not surprising that anti-Israel extremists would promote lies, it's surprising how many people believe and repeat these lies. That's what the big mystery is. Why would the, would the lie that Israel is the only party that has any responsibility in this conflict resonate with anyone, even though evidence to the contrary is widely available. How many people around the world really know what's happening here? So, the Rothstein has suggested the reason the reason the people around the world don't know what's really happening uh, is there are several. First of all, ignorance. Because at least good people of all backgrounds, including Jews, susceptible to lies and misinformation, when people simply don't know the facts, there is a difference between spreading falsehoods out of ignorance and out of maliciousness. Clearly, the remedy for ignorance is education. That's one reason. The second reason is what we call cognitive dissonance. Once someone develops a strong opinion about anything, in this case about Israel, presenting contradictory information causes discomfort that leads to defensiveness or even anger. Cognitive dissonance is a well-known phenomenon. Rather than adopting a more balanced opinion, some people double down. Once they have their opinion and they close their minds to any new information, they disregard all conflicting evidence so they can feel stable or consistent in their worldview. Cognitive, cognitive dissonance is, moment gets, is when someone gets 
very comfortable with a particular view and is disturbed by anything that conflicts with that view. Third, there's a battle for the hearts and minds. Whenever there is a battle for hearts and minds, it is for some reason natural that the weaker party gets more sympathy. Now, it's a fact that Israelis have overcome countless challenges, and Israel, since its founding, has become powerful on just about every level, militarily, politically, economically, scientifically, and culturally. Israel went from nothing to being a powerhouse. It is true that the Palestinians are far weaker and they have suffered more from the conflict, but it's really their own fault. So if one side is looks good, the other side looks weak, some people seem that's enough to conclude that the, the side that looks good, Israel, is to blame, especially when anti-Israel propagandists relentlessly frame Palestinians as blameless victims of random Israeli cruelty. Even when one points out that Palestinian leaders have rejected every major peace offer, even one that was presented on the White House lawn, and have consistently chosen a destructive path of endless conflict, the assumption is that their bad decisions are ultimately somehow Israel's fault. Another thing is just plain anti-Semitism. There are malicious people who know the facts on the ground, but intentionally omit them in favor of blaming the Jewish country, the only Jewish country in the world. Blaming the Jewish state is such a convenient way to promote ill will against Israel. It's not only against Israel, it's also against Jews in general. In the fight for the hearts and minds, there is a deliberate cover-up of the ugly and inconvenient truth about Palestinian leadership, about Palestinian terrorist groups, so that in the end, the propagandists can convince more people to join campaigns of hate that seek to end Israel's very existence. Interesting, by the way, in contrast, Palestinian leaders throughout history, the last hundred and some years, starting with the Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajimin al-Husseini, who promoted pogroms against Jews, even under the British mandate. And then you have Yasser Arafat, a terrorist, Mahmoud Abbas, who was his assistant. Mahmoud Abbas, by the way, is a man is a man who planned the Munich Munich um, massacre back at the uh, Olympic Games in 1972. They have never hidden their goals and actions against Israel. They publicly say they want Israel destroyed. Destroyed. You take a look at the the, the Hamas charter or statements by Mahmoud Abbas insisting that the Palestinian Authority will continue paying terrorists who have been convicted of murdering Israelis and paying their families. There's tremendous evidence about 
the actions of the Palestinian Authority. Holding Palestinian leaders accountable for death, destruction, and suffering they've caused not just for Israelis, but for the Palestinians themselves. They should be held responsible as a matter of principle. The, uh, according to two former Palestinian negotiators, the Palestinians' readiness to take the negotiating path to its logical conclusion was restrained by a perception they were winning the moral and psychological high ground. The paradoxical effect was to make it harder to progress toward an agreement with Israel because it seemed the other influential parties might do the job. In other words, get everybody to hate Israel. The, the, uh, this, this, these lies that blame Israel alone for lack of peace, people should start focusing on what will foster cooperation and a better future for the Palestinians as well as the Israelis. Over the course of the years, as Roz Rustin points out, people have chosen to ignore the motivations and even the statements made by Palestinian leaders that indicate that they're not interested in peace. And it's a terrible thing when people ignore what their own leadership is. And by the way, I think there are not enough people who understand Arabic who know that the Palestinian leadership says one thing in foreign languages when they talk to people in Europe or in the United States, for example, and say something totally different when they speak to their own people. That's why there were organizations here in Israel, like the Palestinian Media Watch and Memory and other sources, who, who study the Palestinian media to show what they are actually saying. So the truth of the matter is anti-Israel propaganda, as Roz, Roz Rothstein says, is the elephant in the, in the room. The Palestinian leaders promote violence. They teach kids to hate. They pay terrorists or murder Jews and essentially reject peace with Israel. And Rothstein calls it the elephant in the room. Ignore the elephant and just blame Israel. That's that's the way it works. And the way the Palestinians behave themselves, the leadership, is the elephant in the room. Incidentally, Mahmoud Abbas made a speech at the Fatah Revolutionary Council last month, and uh, he... Um, a bunch of interesting accusations against Israel. Uh, he said that, uh, that for example, that the Jewish people had no relationship to, this, to the land of Palestine. He, he denies Jewish history. He claims the Jews lied about their past. And he says the Jews are completely responsible for their own oppression and uh, the Jews are uh, the fault is about all the problems in the world. That's what he spoke at this Fatah meeting. And, and there's little chance that the speech 
it eluded the attention of local embassies or consuls around the world. It got very little attention, only the speech last month in which he accused the Jews of just about everything. By the way, Abbas's own doctoral dissertation was Soviet, at a Soviet university, we got a doctorate. It was called The Other Side, The Secret Relationship Between Nazism and Zionism Distorts and Denies Central Elements in the Holocaust. And so, for some reason or other, nobody pays attention to his background. He's considered the best chance for peace in a long-standing Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The uh, people call on Israel to prop up, support, and endorse him. And here's a man so filled with hatred for the Jewish people, for Jewish history, and Jewish suffering, that to see him as the best past, uh, chance for peace simply makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, Abbas is not called out over his anti-Semitism, as would someone in the West or elsewhere, because seen as part and parcel of Palestinian discourse, it's it, it's tolerated. It's, it's all forced. It's not a standard Palestinian position as much as Abbas tries and goes to great lengths to establish. Palestinians are better than, than this hatred, and part of the proof lies in the response by 100 Palestinian academics and intellectuals who signed an open letter to condemn Abbas's morally and politically reprehensible comments. The hatred of Jews is equal to that of others, is not against it like other people. If a politician denied the suffering of other people or claimed they were a result of their own actions, they would justifiably be ostracized. The, um, the, the, it's, it, they allow this guy, Mahmoud Abbas, to go around the world to lie and to say things that they would not accept from any other politician or statement. Abbas is a rabbi, rabid anti-Semite, and his hatred of Jews should rule him out as a partner for peace. He should not be considered a global diplomat or even a per person worthy of decision-making role. When he speaks privately to his own people, his real anti-Semitism goes out. When he speaks at public forum, he, he, he lies. And we have people that, like the Palestinian Media Watch who keep an eye on him, but the world doesn't uh, seem to take notice. The truth of the matter is that Abbas should be made an international pariah and that would send a message clearly and say that the Palestinians simply deserve better leadership. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in the position they are now. So the uh, Palestinians, even those highly critical of Israel, don't need to resort to anti-Semitism, racial hatred to make their point like Abbas does. So one of the things that we that we have a problem with is that the world, it's true that the Palestinians are in bad shape. There's no toys about it. It's pretty much of their own making. But they have a leadership that be, should be called to task for continuing this terrible situation. The, the Palestinians, they're not going to go away. They're here. There are hundreds of thousands of them.
of them. They deserve much, much better leadership. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is a radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Howdy, Bruce Brill here from Nokdim, Israel, in Judea, the homeland of the Jews, and I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Uh, I would like to touch upon uh, several topics here. First of all, it's the uh, Jewish New Year now, and at this time of the year, they generally evaluate what the uh, Jewish population of the world is. Turns out that um, the Jewish population across the globe has risen to approximately 15.7 million people, and last year, according to the same people who do the measurements, there were 15.6 million. So the increase is really minuscule. This uh, data was uh, presented in a report by the Jewish Agency for Israel. The data draws on statistics compiled by a Jewish demographic expert named Professor Sergio Sergio Della Pergola of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Now, the, uh, it's interesting. Specific attention was given to adjustments made in response to new data sources, including national censuses and migration trends in several countries with significant Jewish populations. According to this report, there are currently 7.2 million Jews residing in Israel. Now, Israel has a population of about 9 million, so there are about 2 million people living in Israel who are not Jewish. And uh, the current number of 7.2 million is very slightly up from last year, which is like 7.08 million. Approximately 8.5 million Jews live outside of Israel, and according to this report, it says 6.3 million Jews live in the United States. The truth of the matter is, although this report is provided by the Hebrew University and is supposed to be statistically correct, I find it hard to believe that there are 6.3 million Jews in the United States. Because uh, how do they measure whether someone is a Jew or not? They're, um, these numbers uh, apparently have been reevaluated following a, a comprehensive examination of data from the Pew Research Center survey. They take into account factors like uh, migration patterns, and, and uh, particularly in regions like Russia and Ukraine. The... Um, it's interesting. The, the the how do people identify themselves as Jews? The figures provided refer to individuals who identify themselves as Jews by religion, but do not associate with another religion. It means 
I don't, I don't quite realize, understand how this is based on but the total number of individuals eligible for Israeli citizenship under the law of return now stands at 25.5 million people. So that means if there were uh, 7 point some million residing in Israel, there's uh, 18 million people around the world identified as Jews who are eligible for Israeli citizenship. The interest, interestingly enough, more than a half a million Israelis have become citizens under the law of return are not officially registered as Jews with Israel's population authority. A lot of these people who came from Russia, uh, their parents, their grandparents, their grandfather was a Jew, and they're still listed as Jews. And I think there's something like 300,000 people now who have really no not identified as Jews here in Israel, and they're not uh, something else. They're not Muslims or Circassians or anything else. They're just people who came primarily from the Soviet Union who are not officially recognized as Jews. So uh, it, it, I don't know what these numbers are really based on, but uh, the reports indicate that there are 80 other countries that have Jewish populations above 100. More than 100 Jews in 80 countries in the world, but less than 10,000. In Arab and Muslim countries, there are approximately 27,000 Jews total. There are 14,000 residing in Turkey, 9,100 in Iran, 2,100 in Morocco, 1,000 in Tunisia, and 500 United Arab Emirates. So these are the numbers. You take them for what they're worth. It's interesting, by the way, the, uh, the, some of the there's a big list here of the countries that have Jewish populations, and I find them rather interesting. There's less than a half a million Jews in France. There's less than 400,000 Jews in Canada. There's a little over 300,000 Jews in the United Kingdom, and um, so forth and so on. So uh, these are the numbers, and these are the numbers that are used every year. Sergio de la Pergola, the university, comes up with these numbers. They use his uh, ways of measuring. So. What we're really comparing from year to year is based upon the same method of measuring. So if we say there's 15.6 uh, million Jews last year and 15.7 million this year, so it's 0.1 million more this year uh, for what it's worth. Anyhow, I want to go into a different subject, which is more important than the number of Jews. Uh, next week marks the 30th anniversary of the signing of the Oslo Accords, and that is one of the most colossal strategic errors in the history of modern Israel. The, uh, the legacy of that catastrophe is we're still living with. And the, the warnings of senior ID officials were not taken into account. What happened was Rabin, the foreign, the prime minister, and foreign minister Shimon Peres, 
decided to rescue Arafat from political oblivion 30 years ago. Now, the Arafat was a known terrorist. He ordered the hijacking of airlines, cruise ships, he plotted school massacres, and he, uh, he had great enjoyment in the murder of innocents. S suddenly, our government, our prime minister and our foreign minister gave him legitimacy, made him a partner by the Israeli government thanks to the Oslo Agreement. As a result of the Oslo Agreement, Arafat, the arch-terrorist, was handed the keys to Gaza and to Jericho, followed by other cities in Judea and Samaria. He was allowed to bring thousands of terrorists of the Palestine Liberation Organization from outside the country and was even given arms and ammunition supplied by Israel. The aftermath of this terrible mistake was a, as bloody and lethal as it was predictable. Consider the following. In the five years right after the signing of the Oslo Accords, more Israelis were killed by Palestinian terrorists than in the 15 years prior to that agreement. A total of 279 men, women, and children were murdered in the five years following the Oslo Accords. 254 were killed in the 15 years that preceded it. 279 were killed in five years after it. All told, there have been thousands of Israelis murdered and wounded by Palestinian terror in the past three decades, which was exactly what Oslo was supposed to prevent. Instead, it produced two hostile Palestinian entities that are either side of the Jewish state. They have the Palestinian Authority, which is based in Ramallah, north of Jerusalem. They incite violence, educate youth to murder, pay terrorists handsomely for their actions, and they have the Hamas-controlled Gaza on Israel's western border, which has fired countless rockets at Israeli towns and cities. In one fell swoop, Oslo emboldened Palestinian terrorists, undermined the Jewish state's deterrent posture, and divided the land and the people of Israel. Oslo bequeathed us unprecedented horrors, such as bus bombings, suicide attacks, the kidnapping of soldiers, and even the torching of Jewish holy sites. Rabin and Paris went ahead and gave up plenty of land. They most certainly did not receive any piece of any piece of peace in return. 
the uh, Michael Freund, uh, who was a commentator, put it very uh, interestingly. He said the Oslo experiment was the diplomatic equivalent of the Titanic, a grandiose exercise in hubris that crashed and sank, sending countless innocents to an early grave. Problem is that until today, we continue to suffer from Oslo because various American and international leaders persist in talking about the necessity of a two-state solution and the need to create an independent Palestinian state. These people are, sent, are, <coughs> are, are fan, fantasizing. They continue to preach that conferring statehood on the Palestinians would put an end to the conflict with Israel when all the evidence is just the opposite. These people who talk about a two-state solution ignore the track record of the Palestinians. They scuttle negotiations. They torpedo attempts to, to give them anything. We had uh, Israeli premiers like Ehud Barak and Ehud Olmert who wanted to give them everything they wanted on a silver platter, and they were willing to take what they could and then continue their war against Israel. Those who continue the mouth this two-state solution are simply overlooking the obvious lesson that we learned from Oslo. Israel must never again give up territory under any circumstances, and most certainly not in exchange for promises of peace that are nothing more than promises. We cannot place our security in the hands of anyone else except our own defense forces. And no matter what, we must never allow a hostile Palestinian terrorist state to be established in Judea and Samaria, as it would pose a direct threat to the future of the state of Israel. So, <clears throat> what people have to realize, at the bottom, this is not a battle over borders. Never has been a battle over borders. What we have is simply in a as simply as I can state it, it's a clash of civilizations. It's a clash between the Jewish people who are reclaiming their ancestral homeland, and they have been doing so for more than a hundred years, and on the other side, there are enemies who want to see the state of Israel destroyed. The fact of the matter is, by the way, is there's never been a Palestinian state in all of history. And unfortunately, even after the Oslo Agreement, there is not a Palestinian state now. There was supposed to be a Palestinian state created, created by the Oslo Accords. It simply didn't work. And we have 30 years of experience 
showing that this was a terrible mistake. Thirty years from now, we can say with confidence things can be different, maybe, depending on how we behave. There is nothing other than to say at the moment, Oslo and everything that it stood for is dead. We should no longer try to revive it. We shouldn't talk about a two-state solution. We see what's happened, and it's hard to believe that particularly the diplomats have learned nothing from it. What Oslo did was it brought terrorists back from their exile in North Africa and put them right here, right down our throats. So the 30th anniversary of the signing of the Oslo Accords is really a, a, a time of, uh, I, I can't think of the best word to describe it, one of the colossal mistakes in Jewish history was Oslo. There were big mistakes at the time of the destruction of the first temple. There were big mistakes at the time of the destruction of the second temple. The next big mistake after 2,000 years was the Oslo Agreement. It's interesting, by the way, I'm recording this program on Tom Gedalia. Tom Gedalia is a fast day right after Rosh Hashanah. After the Babylonians conquered uh, Palestine, they allowed the Jews to have a form of self-government, and the person left in charge was a gentleman named Gedalia Benachikam. <coughs> but, because of dissension within the Jewish community itself, he was assassinated by other Jews. And this brought the Babylonians to believe you can't let the Jews have their own government. They don't know how to handle it. That was 2,500 years ago. It's, uh, it's sad to say, but you, you wonder if we've learned anything in that time. We made big mistakes 2,500 years ago. We made a big mistake 30 years ago. And we we're living essentially with the results over history of both mistakes. And uh, I, it, it hurts me, really. I remember when the state of Israel came to, into being. It was a wonderful thing. It remains a wonderful thing. Unfortunately, we have a tendency to choose leadership and diplomats who have no feeling for Jewish history. Therefore, they make mistakes that can best be considered historical mistakes. You don't bring a terrorist back from exile and stick them right down your throat here in our very limited size Holy Land, which is ours. And so, we live with that, and hopefully we learn from it, not to make this kind of mistake. No one knows what the future holds, and uh, no one can predict what will happen tomorrow morning. As Ben-Gurion famously said, nobody knows what's going to happen five minutes from now. That's, that's the way the world is. 
Oslo was a tremendous mistake made by our leadership, who, who themselves did, apparently did not have a good knowledge of Jewish history. And we're living with that mistake. Hopefully, the price we pay for that mistake will be small. And let's see how we get out of it. We're now at the beginning of a new year. Let's hope and pray for a safe new year and a safe future, and that we would choose leadership that has the good sense to know what's good for the future of the Jewish people. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few things about UNESCO, the uh, United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. It's generally known by its initials UNESCO, UNESCO. And that is an organization belonging to the United Nations that among other things is supposed to decide what what things, which things around the world are of historical significance. Now, the uh, last uh, two weeks ago, the, um, the, the UNESCO met in Saudi Arabia and declared ancient Jericho, which is the city through which the the Israelites entered the land of Israel. It's about an hour drive from where I live. They decided, the UNESCO decided, it's a World Heritage Site. Now, that's a good thing. It is of great historical importance. Jericho is regarded as one of the oldest cities in the world, and apparently there is evidence from diggings there that human settlement there began at least 10,000 years ago. Now, it appears throughout the Bible, and uh, it was the site of the Israelites' first battle under Joshua, and they conquered the land of Israel. Now, the city was a very important center during various periods of Jewish history, uh, the Hasmonean periods and the Herodian periods. And I've been down there and I've seen that the remains of several spectacular synagogues have been uncovered in and around Jericho. Years ago, before there was uh, so much friction with the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian Authority actually, actually ran a gambling casino there, and friends of mine used to go. That goes way back right after the Oslo Agreement, but those days are gone. Now, the UNESCO's inscription says nothing whatsoever about Jewish history. 
They say the site's designation refers to vestiges from Middle Bronze Age that reveal the presence of a large Canaanite city-state occupied by a socially complex population. That's all they say. There's no reference whatsoever to the fact that the city of Jericho plays a very important part in Jewish history, particularly if you look at the book of Joshua, that's the first city conquered when the Jews, the Israelites, came in from the desert. Now, the the problem is that at this moment, the Palestinian Authority is trying to erase any recognition that the Jews ever had anything here in Eretz Israel and our Holy Land. What the Palestinian Authority, what their efforts are, is to erase the city's Jewish heritage but also claim it to be a Palestinian city. Now, this is not the first time that UNESCO has played along with Palestinian attempts at changing history. Three more West Bank locations have been designated as World Heritage Site and belonging to the state of Palestine. One is Hebron, the, where the, we have the Tomb of the Patriarchs, and uh, one of the most important cities, that's where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried. There's also Betar, which is now called Batir, the site of an ancient Jewish village, and it was a, it was a very important battle during the Bar Kokhba revolt in the first century and also the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. The Palestinians have signaled their intention to, to submit a bunch of other sites for consideration to be Palestinian sites. And now, now there, let, let's set aside for a moment the fact that there is no state of Palestine at the moment. The Palestinian Authority does not meet the basic requirement of statehood, which is why the United States and Israel withdrew from UNESCO after the so-called State of Palestine was admitted to UNESCO in 2011. At that time, since Palestine is not a state, then the U.S. and Israel quit the UNESCO. So what at issue here is a deliberate erasure of the Jewish people's connection to anything here in the Holy Land. Now, the many simply many things mentioned by UNESCO simply ignore the Jews, and what they're really doing is simply erasing historic Jewish attachment to the Holy Land. Now, it's interesting, by the way, that President Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority, the successor to Yasser Arafat, wrote a doctor, he's called Dr. Mahmoud Abbas. Why is he a doctor? He wrote a doctoral dissertation in Moscow that was based on Holocaust denial. So he is a prominent practitioner of the 
policy of erasing Jewish history. He has consistently denied that the Jews have any historical connection to this land or to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, This is what he tells the UN, this is what he tells other organizations. And they, um, he says exclusively, he told the UN gathering in May, the Western Wall, or what they call the Aburak Wall, and uh, Haram al-Shavrif, which we call the Temple Mount, he said they belong exclusively to the Islamic Waqf alone. So this is all historical nonsense, but if a UN body goes along with this distortion of history by the Palestinians and their attempted erasure of the Jewish peaceful connections and attachment to this land, and if the UN goes along with this, it is simply wrong. The United States, by the way, quit UNESCO together with Israel, but now it rejoined in July, uh, and they claim, the Americans claim, that they rejoined in large part to serve as a check on the, on the anti-Israel bias of UNESCO. Now, it's interesting, by the way, UNESCO has 260 members. The overwhelming majority have diplomatic relations with Israel, and some are very close allies of the Jewish state. But the UN simply doesn't go along with this, The UN, UNESCO, pretends that the Jews have no relationship to the Holy Land. And that is simply a falsehood. And one would have, I remember when the UN came into being at the end of the Second World War, it replaced the the League of Nations, which failed to prevent uh, the Second World War. And it was thought that the future was in the hands of the UN and it would do good things. The UN, and particularly the UNESCO, has turned out to be anti, I don't want to say anti-Semitic, that's too strong a word. The UNESCO has turned out to be an anti-Israel organization. Israel no longer belongs to it. The United States says it belongs to it in order to help it straighten itself out and do away with anti-Israel bias, I don't think it will make any difference whatsoever. We have to reassert and reclaim Jewish ties to the Holy Land. Now I say a couple of words about Arab workers who come into Israel from two places. They come into Israel from Gaza, which is uh, under the... Uh, the terrorist organization. They come in from what's called the West Bank. Here in Jerusalem, for example, there are quite a number of um, residents of uh, uh, the Arab, the Palestinian areas who work in Jerusalem. Uh, We have a gardener uh, who a friend of ours recommended. He's a very good gardener. He lives just outside of Jerusalem in an area near Bethlehem which is considered under the Palestinian Authority. He comes to work every day through a uh, 
the gate, right near Bethlehem. Uh, interesting enough, he keeps a lot of his equipment. He's a gardener. He doesn't have to drag it back and forth every day to his home. He leaves it here, and he works for a number of Jewish families here, and he's a very, very good gardener. Also, is a He's not too expensive, and he really does good work. And uh, the uh, what happening now is the there are there are goods. There is no port in Gaza. Goods come into Gaza either from Israel or from Egypt. If they, for example, come from Europe or some foreign country, the ship lands in either Ashdod or Haifa which are Israeli points, and they're trans-shipped to the Gaza Strip. Now, recently, Israel intercepted a Gaza-bound shipment of chemicals that was used to make rockets. It's interesting how the world looks at it. For example, a New York Times article earlier this year stated that Israel maintains a blockade on Gaza. This is not true. The Israel maintains a general blockade that prevents all imports from Gaza is not true. You can import to Gaza through Haifa or through Ashdod. What you can't import to Gaza is military stuff. In reality, Israel's restrictions concerning Gaza does not prevent the entry of medical medicine, food, or any purely civilian goods. These go back and forth the Israeli-Gaza border every day of the week. And if you go down here, you can see literally hundreds of trucks going in and out of Gaza. Now, it, the New York Times, an August 8th report, said that Israel prevents most people from leaving the territory. This is nonsense. According to a recent U.S. United Nations report, the title of which was Movement in and Out of Gaza in 2022, last year, the Israeli authorities allowed 424,000 417 exits from Gaza, and the Egyptian authorities allowed 140,899 exits from Gaza. The Palestinian Authority and the terrorists who run Gaza do not provide places of work for the people, and if they did not go into Israel or into Egypt, they would simply starve for lack of an income. Except during security emergencies, more than 18,000 Arabs go back and forth between Gaza and Israel every single day of the week. The only thing that Israel blocks is the entry of weapons and items that can be used for military purposes. Workers can come back and forth, and they do so, 18,000 every day. Now, so obviously Israel has to interrupt the flow of weapons into Gaza. 
It's obviously important for Israel to interrupt the flow of weapons to Gaza. It's a question of self-defense. The latest interception illustrates this quite clearly. A shipping came from Turkey, bound for Gaza, was making its way to the Ashdod port when customs officials became suspicious. The shipment, which is two containers weighing 54 tons, appeared to consist of sacks that were labeled gypsum, a soft mineral used as fertilizer and to make plaster and chalk. Obviously very innocent looking. It was for civilian purpose, apparently. Hidden behind the piles of gypsum sacks were 16 tons of identical-looking sacks containing something very different. It contained ammonium chloride, a chemical used by terrorists to manufacture rockets. 16 tons would help produce a lot of deadly rockets to fire into Israel. Now, this is not the first time Israel has such a problem with dual-use items. U.S. Minister Envoy Dennis Ross has admitted to making a catastrophic mistake concerning the entry of cement into Gaza. He was an aide to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton back in 2009, that's 14 years ago, and he pressured Ross, pressured Israel to let Hamas bring cement into Gaza. Now, Here's how Ross recalled the episode on August 8, 2014 in a Washington Post op-ed. He wrote, I argued with Israeli leaders and security officials, telling them they needed to allow more construction materials, including cement, into Gaza so the housing, schools, and basic infrastructure could be built. Israel countered that Hamas would misuse it. It turned out that Israel was right. Now, he admitted that in 2014, relating to something he had done in 2009. So, Hamas has used the cement to construct a labyrinth of underground tunnels, bunkers, command posts, and shelters for its fighters and its rockets. Even Ross acknowledged this. They built the tunnels with an estimated 600,000 tons of cement, some of which was diverted from construction materials allowed into Gaza, which they could have used to build housing for the Palestinians. Now, therefore, it's obvious Israel has to limit and restrict what can enter Gaza. It's elementary self-defense. It's not based on crazy theory, but it's a real-life experience. Once again, we have to keep a real eye on what's going into Gaza, because the Israeli blockade keeps Arabs from building missiles and other things that can be used against the state of Israel. If any of my listeners has a chance to go down to the Gaza border, you can see dozens and dozens, hundreds of trucks going back and forth in and out of Gaza 
every day, primarily in. They don't produce anything in Gaza to be, to be shipped out. Stuff goes in there to keep the people in Gaza alive. And Israel does so so that the people in Gaza don't starve because the Palestinian Authority doesn't provide them in any way to make a living. That's why 18,000 Arab workers come from Gaza every day, plus another, I don't know how many, how many thousands come from the so-called West Bank into Israel because the Palestinian Authority does not provide work for their own people. Israel is doing a tremendous humanitarian thing by allowing workers to come into Israel so that if their families do not starve. It's something the world should really know more about. Trouble is, there always gives me the impression that Israel is cruel and they're, and they're keeping the Gazans locked in. They're locked in as far as it comes to making making destructive items against Israel. They're not locked in when it comes to make a living for their families, which the Palestinian Authority does not provide for them. I'll be back after the break. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Hi, my name is Michael Ben-Noach from Slovakia. Israel News Talk Radio is just the best radio station in the world, and I listen every day. We're back with Jay Shapiro. Uh, at this part of the program, I want to touch upon several items. Uh, first of all, our Prime Minister is meeting this week in the United States at the UN and also with the American uh, President. And these are very, very important meetings for our Prime Minister. Now, the, there was a very close bond between the United States and Israel. It's been that since the very beginning when President Truman recognized the existence, the creation of the state of Israel when the state was very created at the very beginning, the very first few minutes. And even though he was opposed by the State Department, he recognized the state of Israel. Our relationship with the United States has always been close. It's gotten extremely close after the uh, Kennedy administration and after the Six-Day War. And the truth of the matter is, is though, although the United States gives a very large amount of money to Israel, it gets a lot back in return, probably more than it get back, gets back from any other country in which it it's invests its own money. When the United States provides equipment for Israel, as it very often happens that Israel improves the equipment that it gets back get from the United States and it sends the improvements back to the United States to use in its own equipment. So our relation with the United States is very important. Now in Israel right now there's a big struggle between the different branches of Israel's government. The 
the legislative branch is trying to take away power from the judicial branch, which feels has gotten too much power. It's not balanced. However, our democracy functions effectively, and that is true. Our prime minister must address concerns in the United States regarding the direction of Israel's judicial reform, which has been the subject of tremendous amount of, um, for example, public demonstrations for and against religious uh, judicial reform, which had been taking place for more than a half a year. Big, big demonstrations all over the country for and against judicial reform. And it's important for our prime minister to stress to the United States that the fact that people go into the streets to protest doesn't mean they're anti-government. It means that it's a healthy democracy. Judicial reform is a big subject of discussion now in Israel. Now, as I mentioned before, Israel gets a lot of equipment from the United States. But Israel's defense technology plays a vital role in U.S. military equipment because we get tanks, we get armored vehicles, uh, and we improve them and send back the improvements to the United States. We ourselves have here in Israel a air and air defense system called Iron Dome, and it's found a place in the United States and discussions are actually underway for further acquisitions back and forth. Right now, Israel is procuring U.S. aircraft, including advanced F-35 warplanes, and also other critical systems that bolster Israel's security. And at the same time, Israel improves that equipment and sends the equipment back to the United States. It is very important that the relationship between the United States and Israel remains firm. Not only do we share values, but in the trade and defense partnerships that essentially fortify our collective strength. These collaborations extend beyond our borders. Uh, this is evidence, for example, by the recent G20 meetings, which envision a corridor of economic power stretching from India through the Middle East to Europe. Israel is part of that bridge between Asia and Europe. So we have to be vigilant in preventing the materialization and expansion of, of Iran's uh, threats. Iran is the big threat now. Now, Netanyahu, for several years, has sounded the alarm about Iran's nuclear ambitions. He's been doing that for about 30 years. He even spoke in the U.S. Congress some time ago. Meanwhile, the Iranian regime continues its path. They're enriching uranium, and essentially they're jeopardizing the entire region's security. So there's no doubt that we must impress upon the United States, that is, Netanyahu must impress upon the United States that the U.S. must be, must be firm 
in its opposition to any Iranian nuclear capability. That would be a world changer. Now, another area which has, has a promising new potential is Saudi Arabia. It may make peace with Israel. So it's important that both the United States and Israel remain committed to exploring the possibility of some kind of normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Now, these are obviously a, a complex areas, the, uh, but we have to, or we have a shared goal of achieving normalization. Now, what the, that's as far as the region is concerned, Saudi Arabia in particular, we have a problem which is much, much closer at home, and that is the Palestinian Authority. The, we, it, it's obvious from all the information we have that there is deeply ingrained anti-Semitism within the Palestinian Authority. The hatred of Jews is part of the Palestinian Authority slogans. It's really important that we continue to pursue peace, well, obviously, but we have to try to stabilize the Palestinian Authority, and we have to counter terrorist groups. One of the biggest mistakes in Jewish history was the Oslo Agreements that brought a terrorist group back from exile, back right down our throats. Now, anti-Semitism, uh, actually, you know, it, the word anti-Semitism that goes back to 1869. That was the word invented by a a German, uh, I think his name was Heinrich Lamar, but the real word is anti-Jewish. Uh, you know, the Arabs were all semites but anti-Semitism really means anti-Jew, and it is a scourge that is all around the world today, and it's the apparent signs of resurgence, particularly in the United States. So obviously, the it, the, uh, the is, Israel has appointed a new envoy to combat Jew hatred, and coupled with the Biden administration's release of a first-ever national U.S. strategy on anti-Semitism means that we have a joint responsibility to fight this hatred. So the, it, it's important to emphasize the modern-day anti-Semitism, no matter what form it takes, whether it's from the left or from the right, is simply something we cannot accept. So we need partners to help us fight this. It's an, an, it's an evil that's going back thousands of years, and uh, it was, there were times when it was, there were more anti-Semitism or less, uh, we have a, a rough history both in the, in the uh, Arab world with anti-Semitism and in the Christian world with anti-Semitism, but hopefully there are enough people around, enough governments around, who will combine with Israel to fight this thing. Anti-Semitism doesn't, someone has defined it as the world's measles. It's something that just happens all the time. It simply doesn't want to seem to go away. So the bottom line of what I what I mean to say in this first portion of this uh, part of the program 
is that our meeting, the meeting of our prime minister with the American president is really important and it's, it has to be used to strengthen the ties between the United States and Israel, no matter what the government is in either country. In the two nations, we are, we are the really the symbols of freedom in the world, Israel and the United States, no matter whether you have a left-wing government, a right-wing government, Republican government, Democratic government, we are countries that share values they are really important, and we have to stress that. It's really something that has to be emphasized. Now, I want to close this program, which is being broadcast between Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, by um, reading uh, and discussing for my listeners a major central prayer that is said in the synagogue both on Rosh Hashanah and on Yom Kippur. I remember about 20 years ago on my program, I read this prayer, and I guess over the years I haven't read it, but I, it's 20 years since I think that I did it last time, but I want to I wanna read it again because it's important. It's important for every people, not just for Jews, it's for everybody. We have a prayer which has a history, uh, how it was first formulated. It's called Ulisana Tokif. The word Ulisana Tokif means, uh, let us tell how important and how holy this day is, meaning both Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's called Nesana Tokif Kedushat Hayom. Let us tell how utterly holy this day is and how inspiring it is. I'm not going to repeat the Hebrew part, but I want to read the translation in English. I think the listeners will realize the weight of this prayer. I don't know if any other religion has a prayer like this. It's really awe-inspiring. And it really makes you stop and think. It goes like this. Tell us how utterly holy this day is and how awe-inspiring. It is the day when thy domination, the domination of God, shall be exalted. God's throne shall be established on mercy, and God shall occupy it in truth. True it is that God is our judge and arbiter, our discerner, our witness, and he inscribes and records all the forgotten things. He opens the book of life and records and reads itself. Every man's signature is contained in the book of life. A great shofar, a great horns, uh, horns um, is sounded. A gentle whisper is heard. The angels, quaking with fear, declare the day of judgment hears to bring the hosts of heaven to justice. Every today, even they are not those that are not guiltless in thy sight. And the bottom line is, the prayer says, all mankind, not just the Jews, all mankind 
passes before God like a flock of sheep. As the shepherd seeks out his flock, making his sheep pass under his ride, so God makes all the living souls pass before him. He counts and numbers the creatures, he fixes their lifetimes, and inscribes their destinies of all mankind, Jews and non-Jews alike. And then the second paragraph of this prayer, which is very moving, says the following. On Rosh Hashanah, on the new year, their destiny is inscribed. And on Yom Kippur, their destiny is sealed. How many shall pass away? And how many shall be brought into existence? Who shall live and who shall die? Who shall come to a timely end and to who to an untimely end? Who shall perish by fire? Who shall perish by water? Who shall perish by sword? And who by shall perish by beast? Who by hunger? Who by thirst? Who by earthquake? And who by plague? Who by strangling? And who by stoning? Who shall be at ease, and who shall wander about? Who shall be at peace, and who shall be molested? Who shall have comfort, and who shall have be tormented? Who shall become poor, and who shall become rich? Who shall be lowered, and who shall be raised? But repentance, prayer, and charity cancel the stern decree. In Hebrew we say, Tshuva, Tfila, Ustaka, Mavirim, Etroa, Argazera. It's in our hands to repent, to pray, and to give charity so we can change this, this harsh decree. Man comes from dust and ends in dust. He wins his bread at the risk of his life. He's like the potsherd that breaks, like the grass that withers, like the flower that fades, like the shadow that passes, like the cloud that vanishes, like the breeze that blows, like the dust that floats, and like the dream that flies away. Now, God is slow to anger and easy to pacify. He has no desire for anyone to die, but that rather he desires that we turn away from evil ways and live. God waits for us until our dying day. If we repent, he accepts us. He is God, man's creator. He understands. He knows our impulses. We are but flesh and blood. This prayer is not a token is something we said on Rosh Hashanah both days, and we say it on Yom Kippur. And this is, in a sense, the summation of the High Holy Days. We stand before our Creator, and we say it is His hands to decide. He passed, we pass before Him like a flock of sheep. The wording is very beautiful, by the way. It's like a flock of sheep. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, making his sheep pass under his rod, so he's make all the living souls pass before thee. 
I remember years ago, my, my, one of my daughters was in high school and she was studying this prayer. And she said to me, you know what's interesting is when we compare mankind passing before, before God like a flock of sheep, he considered her following. One of her teachers said to her, when a bunch of sheep come out of a pen one after the other and the shepherd decides he's going to slaughter one of them, he marks the one that he's going to slaughter. So let's say he's going to give one out of every ten to the temple for a service. So he counts out nine sheep, and the tenth sheep he marks with a, some kind of a coloring, so he'll know that this is the sheep that he's going to give to the temple for a sacrifice. The, the sheep, of course, doesn't know this. He doesn't know that he's been marked. And in a sense, on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, all of my mankind passes before God. Decisions are made about whether we will live or whether we will die. And we don't know who's marked. We're like those sheep. That's why this, the uh, saying, we pass like a shepherd seeks out his flock. It's a very apropos um, comparison, simile. So now, this time of the year, everyone, in our belief, everyone, Jews, non-Jews alike, passes before the Almighty. And hopefully we will improve ourselves we leave here not knowing who got marked. Not everybody's going to make it through the year. That's not the point. We have to do our best to do what is proper, to be good people, to be good to our neighbors, and to do all the things that are right so that we will have a better society. So I wish all my listeners all the best for the coming year. Let's all be well. Hopefully, we'll have a similar program like this a year from now. Let's hope and pray. Till next time, A. Shapiro, signing off.